0: I would invite the rest of us to turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, specifically the ninth chapter, 1 Kings chapter 9. The text this morning is going to focus on the first 9 verses of chapter 9. So if you would please now give close attention to the reading of God's Word. It is inerrant infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb, And a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you are a God who speaks. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you had this experience as a child. It's one of the most crushing things that a child can experience. It's after mom or dad has promised to do something for you. Not just said, we'll do this, but they really made a big deal out of it and said, I promise you we're going to go here. And then perhaps you had a situation where it wasn't just where circumstances intervened, but maybe mom or dad forgot. And you wondered, how could they forget about that? And you can almost hear the words in your ears now, can't you? But you promised. There are many of us and many children today that experience a similar but not immediately obvious, parallel to that. It's that we may have grown up with parents, or we may have even been guilty of this with our children, or we look out in society and we see it, and we see parents not carrying through undisciplined of their children. Giving them the warnings that they need. Telling them the way in which they are to go, the way of blessing and peace. The Word of God for us this morning shows us the perfect promiser, the Lord God Himself. As He comes to Solomon, and He reminds Solomon of His promise, and He reminds Solomon of His warnings, of the way in which life is found, the way in which God's glory is to be revealed. And so what I would like us to look at this morning here in these first nine verses of chapter 9 are... The blessing of the promise. You recall God has already made a promise. We spent last week looking at Solomon's great prayer, thanking the Lord for that promise. So we'll look at the blessing of the promise that comes. The second thing we'll see is the motivation of the promise. The way the promise of God pushes us on, spurs us on, as the New Testament might say, to love and good deeds. But then our God is a gracious God that doesn't just give us positive motivation. He hedges our way about us, and He gives the warning of the promise. So we'll see the blessing of the promise, the motivation of the promise, and the warning of the promise. So let's take a look then here at chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. The story continues. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house... That the Lord appeared to him. And the Lord said, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. The first thing that we see is that one of the blessings that comes from the promise of God and seeing that promise fulfilled is to know that we are heard by God. You remember the promise that God said that he would be a God to David and to his seed, that he would be with his people Israel, that he would inhabit the temple. And then you remember the great prayer, that sevenfold prayer, where Solomon kept saying, if this happens, O Lord, and your people pray, hear them. So God comes in and he says, I have heard. Now, I want you to understand the context here. In order to get it, we need to jump down just a little bit and look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And then verse 1, we take that with it, that he had built the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all that he desired to build. Our author sticks this passage in here. It would have more naturally fit at the end of chapter 9. Because you see, our author says, after Solomon finished everything, then God came to him and said, I have heard your prayer. But you see, there is building going on between the dedication of the temple and God's appearance to Solomon. Yet our author skips right over to God meeting with Solomon. That should strike you. There's no weight here. It cuts in. It's like an announcement. It's like the way, perhaps, that you might tell a story. Have you ever done this? It's especially true when couples tell a story. Well, this is what happened. And if the husband's saying it, oftentimes he'll jump to the end. And you're not going to believe what happened. And the wife will nudge and say, Honey, you forgot all this stuff in the middle. Give them the context. Ladies, you do that as well, too, don't you? You skip right to the good part. Well, that's what our author is doing here. He wants the people of God to know that God has heard. Don't lose the context here. Solomon has just prayed this great prayer, and now our author tells us, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God has heard Solomon's prayer. What a comfort that would be to a man sitting in a hut outside Babylon. To know that God hears prayer and acts on it and is with his people. What a comfort that is to you and to me as we offer up prayers for our expectant mothers, for baby Jace, for all of the people who are hurting. We know that God is a prayer hearing God. That is a blessing of the promise of God. That he will be with us, that he will hear our prayers And if we're honest about it, we understand and we need that kind of communication. We need to know we are heard. You see, God is treating the answer to prayer as important or more important than the building of the temple. He doesn't come to Solomon and say, good job with the temple, Solomon. Love the gold. Perfect place for my name. He says, I've heard your prayer. Even... In society, there is that God-shaped hole in us that lets us know that we want to know that someone hears us and understands us. Dr. Phil has made a living out of this. People come up to him and they tell him all sorts of things. It's because they want to be understood. I had that experience on Friday. I was flying to Atlanta for a General Assembly meeting. Young man... I can say that now because I'm almost forty. A young man sitting next to me with a with a family started telling me about his life and the jobs that he lost and his difficulties with finances, and I put in a good plug for financial peace, and telling me all of these things that I don't know why he's telling just a man who's on a plane with him. It's because he wanted someone to understand him. He wanted to be heard. And that's true of us as well. Christian, the desire that you have To be understood and heard is put in you by God. It's a way that God draws us to Him. Don't shunt that off. Don't push that down. Don't say, well, I shouldn't bother people with that. No. It's a God-given ability to want to be understood. It's because God wants us to come to Him. There's a parallel passage to this passage in 1 Kings 9 where God comes and says to Solomon, I've heard your prayer. You may remember that passage better from memory. It's in 2 Chronicles 7. It's the passage that has that famous phrase, if my people will humble themselves and come to me and pray, I will hear them and I will answer and I will heal their land. Do you see? God wants us to bring our difficulties to him. God wants us to come to him when we have blown it worse than we think we have ever could have blown it. Because he wants us to be close to him. This is something that God predicted. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Lord wrote that the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, that is, the land. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Psalm 34 takes this passage and says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and the ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God is a prayer-hearing God. And one of the blessings of the promise of God is to be heard by God. But hearing is really just a means to relationship. And so the second thing that we see that we are blessed with in the promise of God is that it is that we are with God. Another blessing is to be with God. Notice how the Lord answers Solomon's prayer. Remember, this is in the context of Solomon praying to the Lord, and God comes and he answers. How does he answer Solomon? He says, I have heard your prayer. I have consecrated this house. And my name will be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. He tells Solomon three things. He says, first, I hear you. But God is not like the vacuous individual you might hear or know who says to you, I hear you. And they walk away. He's not like the man that James says, oh, go ahead, be warm and be filled. God hears and then he acts. God is not only a prayer hearing God, he is a prayer acting God and he wants relationship with us and he says, I have consecrated this house. I've heard your prayer, Solomon, and I have made it holy that you might commune with me, that you might have the holy of holies, that you might have a place to sacrifice, that you might be reconciled with me. God doesn't just listen a good game. No, God hears and he acts, but he also loves. This little verse here in verse 3, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. It's an interesting thing about the Bible. It's not true of any other book. Individual words have so much meaning. This word here, heart, is used fairly often by our author of Kings. It's actually used 51 times in First and Second Kings. That will save you going to Strong's Concordance and counting this afternoon. 51 times. The only time in both of these books that the heart referred to is God's is right here. After the temple has been built, after the prayer has been given, and God is saying, not only do I hear you, not only do I act for you, He says, Solomon, Israel, Christ's church, I love you. My heart will be there with you. You see, God wants to be with His people. He wants to love them. And this transcends this building, this temple. For who is the true temple but the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, this passage merely looks forward to the enduring temple. The temple made without hands. The temple that can never be destroyed. The city of God that is founded by the Lord Jesus Christ. There the heart of God is. You see, if you want to know the heart of God, The best place to start looking is at Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, God is not just talking about the temple. He wants a relationship with Solomon. He addresses Solomon. But then he moves from Solomon to all of Israel. He wants a relationship with all his people. Not just special people. Not just the leading people. Not just the wise people. No. God wants a relationship with every man, woman, and child who are united to Him by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all important without measure. This is about God communing with His people. And all of this the temple that's been built, the covenant that God established, the promise that He gave it's all about the relationship. You see, the temple is a means to having a relationship with God. The covenant is not an end in itself. It's about God having a relationship with his people. The promise is not about what God can do. The promise is about having a relationship with God. And that is as true today in the 21st century in Texas as it was centuries ago in Israel. God wants that kind of relationship. And He uses means to be with His people. We can see an earthly example of this in the way that husbands and wives relate. Or perhaps even more so, fiancés. Guys, have you ever gone to an auction or to a ladies' clothing store? or to a restaurant where you didn't like the food because your wife wanted to go there? And you did that in order to be with her? Ladies, have you ever sat down and said, explain to me how this basketball thing works? Not because you wanted to brush up on your knowledge of sports, but because you wanted to sit next to the man you love? I'm sure that parents... Have spent hours into the intricacies of Legos and Transformers because they are captivated by it. Not. But you say, well, let's see how this works. Let's see if Dick and Jane really can run. Let's sit down together and read the book because it's a means of having that relationship strengthened. And God, God doesn't use books. He doesn't use sports. He uses grand things like covenant and temple and promise to bring us to Himself. That's a blessing of the promise. And this promise brings about also motivation. Because God gives us this promise, we're not to sit around on our laurels and congratulate ourselves for being promise No. There's motivation there because what God wants... ...is your obedience. Yes, Christian, God wants your obedience. I'm not afraid to say it. He wants you to obey Him. Look at verse 4. And as for you, if you will walk before me... ...as David your father walked... ...with integrity of heart and uprightness... ...doing according to all that I have commanded you... ...and keeping my statutes and my rules... ...then I will establish your throne over Israel forever... ...as I promised David your father... God immediately attaches himself to Solomon. He says, as for you, Solomon, very specific, very emphatic in the Hebrew, you, here's what I want you to do. Have you ever felt like God's grabbed you and said you? Maybe it's a close call as you were not doing what you're supposed to be doing in the car and you almost get in an accident. Maybe it's a scare at the hospital. Because there's some tests that come back. Maybe it's a test that you lied to your parents about that you studied for. And you realize, now I've got to explain a D. God gets our attention. Because he wants us to follow the path that he has set out for us. We might put it this way. That the, the blessing of David only comes in the context of the life of David. You see, David gets a blessing and God points Solomon toward the life of David. David becomes the standard by which all of these kings who follow are judged. Those of you that are in Lane Sunday School class are getting a bit of a feel for that. And we're going to see as we go through a constant refrain. We see it here in verse 9. If you turn the page, you see it in verse 4 of chapter 11. For when Solomon was old... His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. In verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Verse 38. And if you will listen as David my servant did. Then we go to chapter 14 in verse 8. Yet you have not been like David, my servant. Chapter 15, verse 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Over and over again, we hear this. These are just a few of the instances. God holds up David as the standard. Now, you may say to yourself, wait a minute. David? Isn't he the guy with Bathsheba? Wait a minute. Isn't he the guy that killed Uriah? No, no, wait a minute. Isn't he the guy that numbered the people? Why David? Do you see what the Lord is doing here for Solomon? He says, this is the standard. But it's not a standard of perfect action, is it? No, what is David best known for? Is it for what he did? Do we say David, the builder of the temple? Do we say David, the conqueror of the Philistines. No, what do we say? David, the man after God's own heart. That's how we know David. And you see, that's what God is pointing Solomon to. He says, I want your obedience, but the obedience is such that it reveals your heart. It doesn't create it. In our terms, if you today are seeking to obey the Lord God, that He might bless you, that He might have a relationship with you, that He might save you. You must repent of obeying. But if you are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, if you are united to God the Father, from whom every family on earth is named, because of the blood of Christ on Calvary, then you must obey to show that your heart is is changed. And there's a world of difference between those two statements. There's bondage and freedom. Death and life between those two statements. You see, we obey the Lord God out of gratitude for the blessings that He has showered down upon us. Because you see, God is the one who establishes His promise. Look at verse 5. He says, Then I will establish the royal throne And as I promised David, you shall not lack a man. That promise of God does not depend upon Solomon. Solomon can go out and get all the foreign wives he wants. He can gather all the horses to himself that he wants. He can offer up sacrifices to all the foreign gods that he wants. And God will keep that promise. Because that promise doesn't depend on Solomon. It depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, we can ask that the Lord would bless this church, that the Lord would bless our ministry. But you know what? It doesn't depend on me or you. We are not as important as we think we are. You see, the real blessing is in obeying God and showing that we have hearts that are changed, that the Lord uses us, that the Lord grants us the privilege to see Him working through us. To his glory. That's what he's offering up to Solomon. He says, I want you to grab a hold of this promise. Because it doesn't need to apply to you. There's something else that we need to think about here. And that that is the chastisement that God lays upon those who disobey is a gracious thing. The worst thing that a parent can do when their child is playing with matches is ignore them and walk out of the room. It's cruel. It will hurt the child. It will hurt the house. It will destroy the family. No. The loving, wise, caring parent comes up, takes the matches away, smacks the hand and says, Don't you ever do that again. For love's sake. That's what the Lord God does when he chastises. The second thing we see here that motivates us from the promise of God is that God wants our hearts. You see, outward conformity is not what God wants. If that were so, the temple would be the pinnacle of what Solomon had done. And God doesn't even mention the temple here in terms of Solomon's work. He says, I want your obedience. I want your heart. We might put it this way. Some of you know this. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, does he? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you know that, kids? That's an application of this here. God looks at your heart, not at the outward appearance. He wants not our accomplishments, but He wants us. We can fall prey to that, can't we? We look back and we assume that the Lord has to bless us because America was founded as a Christian nation. And that God will do what He will do simply because of that. Now, I'm not denigrating that. I'm thankful that the men who established our Constitution were, by and large, biblical scholars. But I don't rest in their accomplishments. In the same way, I am thankful every day for the men who penned the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I don't assume that because I know the Westminster Confession of Faith, I will love my wife and children properly. I need to obey. Now, the confession guides me in that. The scriptures guide me in that. But just the fact that I own so many Bibles or have memorized so much scripture, that doesn't get me there. I can't rest in past accomplishments. I need to push on in the way of obedience. That's what God wants. You see, what God wants is inward obedience. He wants, Do you notice this turn of phrase, integrity of heart. One of the great banes in the church is to set up as long of a list of rules as possible and to make sure we check them off as much as possible without getting at the heart. Now, God's not against laws. We've got entire books of the Bible full of them. But what God says is those are there to reveal the heart. I want heart obedience. This is the motivation that we have to go on to obedience, that God has promised to give us his word, that God has promised to relate to us, that God has promised to take us and our heart close to him. But the Bible does this as well. If you've been with us now for some time, you know that as we go through the scriptures, there's been many passages that are like this. God very often mixes positive with negative. You shall do. You shall not do blessing and curses. And he gives a great warning. This promise also comes with a warning, the warning of the promise. And the warning of the promise is first and foremost that God will not ignore you. Now you stop and think, well, I don't want God to ignore me. I want the Lord's help. Really? Really? Do you want the Lord paying attention to you when you're watching something you shouldn't watch? Do you want the Lord's eyes fixed upon you when you're breaking out in anger? I know I don't. I like to pretend I've got maybe about a three by six foot square bubble that God can't see in. And I can do what I want. I'm sure he's busy. He's looking over there now. Maybe he's paying attention. Well, the Steinhouses are very busy with Jace, and that's a very big concern. Maybe he's paying attention there, and now I can get away with what I want. to. You see, we don't want God paying attention to us all the time. But God says, like the loving parent that he is, I will not ignore you. You see, God's call to obedience is not an afterthought. It's not, oh, by the way, please toss in some obedience. No. You notice something about the Lord's answer to Solomon here? If you just look at the page, you will see, you don't have to count, more than half the words of the Lord's answer are warning. God gives the promise and then he gives some motivation, but the bulk of his answer is warning to Solomon. And it's a very specific kind of warning. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to keep my laws. I want you to do according to what I have commanded you. Keep my statutes and my rules. But then the second thing he says is, I need you to keep from idolatry. He says, you cannot go and worship after other gods. It's a very specific kind of obedience that God wants. You see, God knows that great and technical truth. That nobody grows in Fuzzyland. We need the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword to point us onward to a life of glory and health. We need God to hedge about our way with His commandments and His statutes, to be very specific to us and to be repetitive with us. Because we don't get it, do we? We're sheep. You've heard some preacher tell you one time that sheep are the dumbest of all animals. And it's true. We need constant reminders. And our shepherds are sheep too. So your ministers, your elders need constant guidance and reminders. We need very specific help. And you see, God lays out for Israel. He says, he warns them. He says, I'll undo everything that I've just done. Do you remember last week the promises that God had fulfilled? First, that he would give them the land. Second, that he would give them a temple. Third, that he would give them a dynasty. He says, you know what? I'll kick you out of the land. I'll knock down this temple. Solomon, your children will not necessarily sit On a gold throne. Because you know what? God isn't concerned about how many square miles of Palestine Israel holds. He's not concerned about how many bricks or stones high the temple is. He's concerned that his people obey him. Take his message out to the world and glorify him. And so... God moves. He does something that you might miss, depending on what translation of the Bible you have. Not that there's bad translations, but English has changed. The only translation that really picks this up properly is the old King James. Because we've stopped using certain words like thee and thou. We see here in verse 4, God says to Solomon, And as for you, if you will walk before me. And then in verse 6, he says, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children and do not m- keep my commandments. And we think God's really laying it heavy on Solomon here. Solomon does something. The whole kit- caboodle's going to go down. And we miss that verse 4 is thou. And verse 6 is ye. You see, verse 6 is plural. Verse 6 is not addressed to Solomon. Verse 6 is addressed to all Israel. Verse 6 is addressed to you and to me. We are called to not turn aside from following him. We and our children. God lays this upon all of us. And the same command that came to Israel comes to us. The importance of teaching our children. Because if you or your children do not keep my commandments or my statutes the only way your children are going to obey the Lord is if you teach them the Word of God. Humanly speaking. You don't just expect your kids to know the Bible unless you read it to them. Memorize it with them. Teach them. It's the Old Testament principle in Deuteronomy 6 that you have the Word of God before you when you sit down, when you stand up, when you go out, when you're on your door, on your clothes... Everywhere you go, you have the word of God. And so the question then comes to us. We're not Israel, but are we cultivating this same kind of obedience in our children? Do we put the word of God before them? Now, parents, you are not responsible for the results. God is. There's no switch, at least that I've found, that cranks, turns, ups, or downs your children's hearts. All that you are responsible to do is to put the Word of God and the story of God and of Jesus Christ in front of them. God does the rest. And we do this because God does marvelous things in ways we don't expect. I had opportunity yesterday. I was in Atlanta at this General Assembly meeting and on my committee was a man by the name of Kennedy Smart. Kennedy Smart is the man, I believe this is true, who taught D. James Kennedy how to do evangelism. Okay, so it's pretty good credentials. He taught the guy who invented E.E. how to do evangelism. And he was telling us a story about how he tried to plant a church. And he said, well, you know, we tried to do it. It wasn't really a big success. He said, I don't think we reached 50 or 60 people. And then he described how the church that he's in now, he's had opportunity to mentor some grade school children, second, third, fourth, fifth grade children. And there was one boy named Max that he mentored. And one day Max said to him, can I come to church? And Kennedy said, well, of course, we'll arrange to come get you. We've got a Wednesday night uh, Bible study program, catechism for kids. Why don't you come to church? boy came. Next week he said, can I bring my sister and my brothers? Well, sure, why not? Okay. Next week he said, well, can I bring my friends? And Kennedy said, how many friends do you have? He said, 22. Okay, we'll get a bus. This little boy brought more than 60 children from the trailer park in which he lived to hear the word of God. I don't know how many families that is. Probably 40, 30. And here, this paragon of evangelism said, it wasn't me, I couldn't do anything. It was this little fourth grader. You see, God is glorified according to His own means and desires. We are just called to be faithful and to bring the Word of God every place that we have opportunity The final thing that God warns us of is that not only will he not ignore us, but he will not ignore his glory. God will not ignore his glory. He will not ignore it for our benefit. He will not ignore it for our safety. He will not ignore his glory so that we can be comfortable. Because do you notice something about all of this passage? All of the warning, all of the communication is what we might call first commandment language. He doesn't say, Solomon, if you don't steal or if you don't lie. It's all, you must worship me. You must not worship other gods. You must obey me. You must listen to my commandments. You must listen to my voice. It's first commandment language. And you see, God wants to be glorified and testified to in all the world. And he says to Solomon, in essence, you will be a testimony to me. If you obey, you will reflect my glory. If you don't, you'll be a proverb and a byword. And people will walk by centuries from now and say, what in the world happened there? And someone will say, they didn't obey the Lord God. They didn't worship him. They abandoned him. Do you feel the power of that statement? Because you see, there are people hearing this statement for the first time that have dust from the temple on their clothes. Because they've seen it come to pass. That God has said, I'm not worried about your land. I'm not worried about this temple. I want you. It's a warning. Jeremiah, chapter 22, gives us the fulfillment of this prophecy. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshipped other gods and served them. Now, we don't have a temple. Even our nice building with its nice steeple isn't a temple. But the same thing is true for the church. You see, the church can be a source of great blessing in Katy, in Houston, in Texas, in America, in the world. Or where the church abandons God, seeks after man's ways, doesn't instruct their children in the ways of the Lord, doesn't seek to obey Him, doesn't seek to worship Him. The church can become a byword. If you don't believe it, take a tour of New England. There are gorgeous churches that have been boarded up for a hundred or more years. Places where the greatest of theologians were. Where the law of God was written into the constitution of states. And now there's almost no evangelical witness. It's a warning that comes from the Lord God. So what do we then take from this interview with Solomon that the Lord takes? The first thing is is that we know that the Lord wants primarily a relationship with us. It's one of the reasons He's given us His table. The Lord wants a relationship with us. And God wants us to be blessed. And that blessing is found in obedience. But the third thing that we need to grab onto, Christian, is that God wants His glory to be seen. And my desire for you and for me is to be a part of, of the blessing of that glory of God going out through our ministry. This is the blessing of the promise of God. This is the motivation that the promise of God gives to us. And there is a warning there for us in the promise of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. And we pray even now, O Lord, that you would bless us, that you would bless us, with the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you now and forever. Amen.